transmitting from the Mojave Wilderness in Joshua Tree, California. Now is the time for Desert Oracle Radio, the voice of the desert. Well, night has fallen on the desert and it's still Halloween. It is still Halloween in our hearts. It's Halloween time. But we must admit that it is November now. It's November 2019. And that's when the movie Blade Runner takes place. The 1982 movie based on a Philip K. Dick book and named for an unrelated screenplay by William S. Burroughs. So welcome to the Blade Runner time. We've got too much packed into tonight's show, so we are going to get right to it. We're going to be bringing on our first guest, Jason P. Woodbury of Phoenix, Arizona. I believe he's originally from Coolidge. Who will be joining us now and again to talk about some of the great mysteries in the world of popular music or music in general. Tonight we're also going to hear from Laura Bolt. Laura is an occult writer and kind of a witch. This is a time of year you want to talk to such people. Jason Woodbury is going to talk to us about a singer-songwriter who just disappeared in the desert. No trace of him ever found. He was on the way to Nashville. Having left Los Angeles. And his name was Jim Sullivan. So welcome to the program. Thank you for joining us tonight on Desert Oracle Radio. Now let's get to the weird stuff. I just thought of this because I was reading a book by Jacques Vallée called Revelations. He's a, it's a 30-year-old book. He's an astronomer, French astronomer, who's an important figure in ufology, the oh. study of UFOs. Um, he's, there's a the character in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. The He's an interesting character. He's He was one of the early inventors of the Internet. Right. That, uh, he was also friends with people like Robert Anton Wilson, Anton LaVey, uh, the sort of yes. Bay Area occult underground culture. So Yes, he was, in, he was hanging out with some cool, strange, weird, weird folks. And he shows how some of these things were intentional deceptions run by 
various intelligence operations. It's it's interesting. But then you get to the cattle mutilations, and he spends a lot of the book on cattle mutilations. And one thing I did not realize about the huge wave, they go back forever, but the huge wave that started in 1976 centered on Colorado, and there were hundreds and hundreds of incidents all of, all over the West in a couple of year period starting in 76, is that there were really distinct global pattern UFO phenomena that would happen with these cattle and other animals, sometimes sheep, being just absurdly dissected and having various organs exactly removed, no blood, a circle of flattened earth or wheat or whatever at the site, and these red, these kind of wide red things that would be seen hovering over the area and then would shoot straight up and into the sky. And there's stories like this from Zimbabwe, southern part of the African continent, Europe. And these animals are just like murdered in the weirdest ways. Right. And it's never been explained. You know, it was like the biggest manhunt or whatever hunt in Colorado history. Just thousands of troopers and highway patrol and county cops all trying to organize and catch whatever was killing all these cattle on all these farms everywhere. And they never even got a suspect ever. Right. Huh. And they'd happen like when roads were blocked. Right. So that yeah, with 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 no no way to access these where where these things were taking place. Yeah. And I finished that part of the book and I was walking back from uh, the restaurant and I was thinking yeah, that's that's more connected possibly to the the Jim Sullivan story than right. the more Space Brother kind of UFO stories that I think somehow he's kind of more associated with. Well, sure. So the timeline lines up pretty pretty well. He 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 disappeared in 1975, like March of 75. They um, yeah, they were going on. And I think that Space Brother thing comes a lot from sort of the tone of, of specifically the song UFO from his 1969 album where he's kind of he's, he's kind of discussing this this maybe maybe like a visitor or something along those lines who he's questioning you know did he did he come by UFO so it's kind of like a I think that I think that has a lot to do with it and I think that within the counterculture you know Jim and his wife Barbara who who worked for Capitol Records they were probably pretty immersed with the idea of of Space Brothers you know that kind of thing um I think that they a lot of people conceived of uh of extraterrestrial visitors 
they, they kind of viewed the idea of that through the lens of the counterculture itself. And so, like, anybody who would be coming to visit us would be very groovy and cool. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, uh, yeah. Kind of down. So and that, that I was probably, also a period in uh, the early into the mid-70s when a number of people, especially on the West Coast, artists, writers, musicians, were having these very intense experiences where they thought they were communicating or being directly uh, kind of broadcast to by uh, an alien intelligence. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. There were a ton of people who, who had that, that kind of feeling of a transmission occurring, you know, and that they were receiving this data from someplace else. Right, like uh, uh, the Altered States guy, John Lilly. Yeah, yeah. He's on an air. This is in Eric Davis's book, High Weirdness. He's on an airplane coming into LAX. And this comment that was a big media sensation, this comment that was a big media sensation and kind of fizzled out, it wasn't it wasn't that big a deal. It didn't look as, as impressive as people thought it would. But anyway, he's looking out the window of his plane and he's looking at the comet and he gets a message from this thing, the solid state intelligence. And it says, I'm going to show you my power. I'm going to uh, sh shut down the airport so this plane won't land. And he's freaking out, you know. He's also high as a kite, but uh, maybe maybe not connected. Maybe. Or maybe connected. I and then know. the pilot comes on and says, We've been diverted. The power went out at LAX. The power went out because a plane crashed in, into some transformers. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. mean, there were like weird, sinister messages coming down all the time. Some people thought it was something more positive. Why don't you tell us, uh, for those of us like myself who only learned about Jim Sullivan's music really in the last year or so, who Jim Sullivan is and your connection to him. Sure. Sure. So, so Jim Sullivan was sort of a... He was kind of like a weird, mystic, country rock, psychedelic folk songwriter who released two incredible albums in uh, 1969 and then in 1972. In 1969, he released an album called UFO. And UFO was this record produced by a guy named Al Dobbs who knew all the members of the Wrecking Crew who were sort of L.A.'s finest session people. And uh, so he, he convened all these folks and they played uh, this record, UFO, which is sort of weird and um, it's kind of funky, but at the same time it's very rooted in folk and like country traditions. Uh, I know that the folks at Light in the Attic Records who have reissued it, you know, they they cite like David Axelrod as sort of a reference point where there's like a very sophisticated thing going on, um, but it's also very like earthy. Uh, so he made this record and shopped it around and nobody bought it. Um, 
uh, it was released on Al Dobbs' own label, uh, Money Records. So nobody bought this one, but but Jim kept pushing, and uh, eventually he got signed to uh, Playboy Records. Hugh Hefner had a, a short-lived record label, and that's where he recorded another album, a self-titled effort, uh, in 1972 and uh, Light in the Attic has recently reissued that record and I wrote new liner notes for it uh, that were based on interviews I did with the producer Lee Birch and uh, session man Jim Hugart who among others uh, kind of created the soundscapes that you hear on, on the second Jim Sullivan record uh, okay and- so you're not doing a, a bit of Art appreciation on these liner notes. You, you're doing you're doing research work. I di- I did. Yeah. Um, I like I like poetic musings about music a lot. Um, and and that's sometimes what we do at Aquarium Drunkard, um, where I, I write a lot. But yeah, no, I I, I, I dug in and and um, and the folks at Light in the Attic had some studio logs and some documents that sort of were related to it and went back and uh with original copies of the record kind of researched those liner notes and 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 followed those through but but yeah thankfully for me uh lee and and the other jim jim hugart were around to talk to me about their personal connection to jim sullivan and and what it was like to work on this record um jim was a jim was a, a fascinating dude like he he hung out at the time with like major guys around town, around Los Angeles, you know, Lee Marvin, Lee Majors, Harry Dean Stanton. He's in the movie Easy Rider um, he as like an extra. So no he, kidding. He, he was an Easy Rider. Yeah, he's part of the part of the commune where uh, where, where when they show up, um, he's he's got like this giant mustache and. Uh, I pulled out my like my Criterion edition and and like located him in the frame and stuff and so yeah there was this was a this was a um, a research project and and luckily um, I had honestly a couple of years to work on it um, while Light in the Attic was readying the release of this record so so the the new Jim Sullivan reissue just is is just recently out uh, along with a collection of demos he did um that were that's called uh if if the evening were dawn so so that's never been heard um but this playboy record it made it out there a little bit and i think it garnered some okay reviews but for whatever reason it just didn't it didn't land and it's a little bit less ethereal than ufo but um but it's definitely still got a little bit of a, a spooky quality that kind of separates Jim from the average folkies of the day, I think. Yeah, he he has a a haunting about him that it really kinda hangs on to all the songs, you know. It's it's not a heavy kind of goth haunting. But no, no. but there's something there's something just kind of open and mysterious about it, and uh, it it's something that a lot of Southwest music that's really effective has about it. You know, some some sort of kind of space in the landscape, I guess. And, yeah, that's right. And, and 
some of the songs are um, they're kind of difficult, you know. They're kind of intentionally difficult. They're kind of sure. Uh, they're interesting, and you can see why a guy like Harry Dean Stanton would want to hang around him and listen to him. Yeah, especially Harry Dean, for sure. Yeah, and I mean, I go, I go back and forth. A couple of years ago, um, I wrote an article for uh, uh, the Los Angeles Review of Books that was uh, going to be an Aquarium Drunkard column, and then stuff shifted around, and it was published as that, but it was the only one that ended up getting getting done. But I wrote about Jim Sullivan, and I wrote about the allure of mystery when it comes to music and when it comes to these kinds of artists who were sort of lost to time. Um, and, and I think that with Jim Sullivan, the mystery of him and the mystery of whatever happened to Jim, because I don't know if we've already mentioned it or not, but he, he, he disappeared in New Mexico in, in 1975. Yeah, no, we, we really, up and vanished. we really haven't uh, talked about it. Why don't you tell us what happened? Because for a lot of people, that's kind of the entry point into his music. Certainly the entry point for me. Yeah, absolutely. So after he released this Playboy record um, and it didn't yield a big hit, things kind of got tough. And I think... uh, from what I understand, Jim kind of started drinking a little bit more and his marriage was starting to grow a little strained. Just sort of the pressure of, of trying to be a musician and trying to make your way in the world and it not quite landing. Um, but in March of 1975, he decided it was time to give Nashville a shot. Uh, he wanted to go see if he could maybe gain some traction out there. So he left his son, Chris, and his wife, Barbara, behind, and he went out ahead of them with the intention of them joining him later in his Volkswagen Beetle. And uh, what we know is that on March 5th, he was pulled over outside of Santa Rosa, uh, New Mexico, which is like about two hours east of Albuquerque along Route 66. And he was pulled over for swerving, but he passed a field sobriety test. The cop took him out and did all that. And uh, I think it was just maybe that the 15-hour drive had maybe got to him. Um, And so then we know that he checked into the La Mesa Motel, and then he headed out to get some vodka at the local liquor store. And here's where stuff starts to get a little bit weird and maybe murky. Um, a lot of this, the story I'm talking about, uh, I got to credit Matt Sullivan of Light in the Attic, who went out on a, a road trip slash fact-finding mission to kind of piece together the last, you know, hours of Jim Sullivan as we understand, you know, them to be. So, so Matt. Uh, has kind of pieced together that essentially Jim decided he was going to start cruising around town and somehow he ended up southeast of the town near a small ranch owned by a local family called the Genetti's. Um And this is where things get especially murky. Some reports suggest that uh, he was driving around out by their ranch and Mrs. Gennetti came out, or Gennetti, came out uh, with a ranch hand or two and, you know, upon seeing his lights, asked him, hey, do you have a problem? Uh, and he responded, apparently, no, do you? Like, he just kind of being like a flippant 
kind of a maybe a slightly grouchy, slightly combative kind of kind of fellow. And then there were other reports that he, for some reason, knocked on the family door, and that when they answered, Mrs. Gennetti didn't speak enough English. She only spoke Italian, apparently, uh, to speak with him to court, you know, to kind of figure out whatever it was, so that he tore off. So these are sort of conflicting stories. This kind of uh, sounds like the plot of Paris, Texas. Yeah, it does. It does sound a lot like the the plot of Paris, Texas. And at this point, maybe he just wandered off into the desert, um, as Harry Dean's character did, sort of there. So, what we know is that the next the next day, police found his car uh, near the ranch. The engine was dead, and in it was his wallet, his clothes, his a reel to reel recorder, his twelve string Guild guitar. And a box of those Playboy LPs, um, and they were all left behind with, with no sign of Jim, and that's it. Nobody knows what happened to him. Nobody's sure what what exactly went down. The police co- towed the car. Uh, there were search parties sent out. Uh, Barbara and her son, his wife, they, they came out and joined him. But but Jim never turns out, never tur- never turned up. A, a couple years, not a couple years, a couple days later, rather, uh, eventually, weeks or months, they, they found uh, a body outside of Las Cruces. Um, and they had reported maybe this is this guy who went missing jim sullivan but but then later there was a news report that followed that up that said that they've figured out that it wasn't him that it didn't turn him up so so there's all these theories you know what happened to jim and i think that wait who was uh, who was the other guy well, I don't. They don't. I, there's not a whole lot of uh, concrete information. This was all stuff that was gathered from old newspaper clippings that 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 uh, Matt from Light in the Attic turned up. You know, so uh, it, it, who who that guy was, I don't know. But he, he he sort of sounded like Jim Sullivan. Apparently, had a mustache and a tattoo. But uh, but apparently, it was it was determined that it wasn't it wasn't his body. Uh, his family certainly, you know, didn't take possession of this body. Uh, they were told that it wasn't it wasn't him. So what happened to Jim is is the big question. And I think that you, you, you ever know, been to Santa Rosa? I've never been to Santa Rosa. No, I've never gone out. Have you? Well, I, I'm sure I've gone through it. Yeah, I, I would I've say the same on the for sure. Sixty-six, pretty much wherever you can go. On. It, it was still. I kind of went on a Route sixty-six trip when when it, the road was being undone in nineteen eighty-three. Right. So I, right, right, uh, which was wonderful. And I spent a lot of. I was uh, in Farmington one night, a memorable night, uh, right there where the the sixty-six meets the old. 666. Yeah. yeah. Spooky. Highway 666. Now, speaking of satanic panic, as, as we had been earlier, um, Route 666, which is the most haunted road I've ever been on in my life, the Christians got up in arms. It then 666 forever. But in the 80s, they got up in arms because... Now the devil was, you know, on the loose, and they got the name of the, right. they got the name of the road changed. It's the one that runs alongside Shiprock. 
That's incredible. That's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we might have to go check out Santa Rosa because it sounds like bodies are just turning up all over, you know? I mean... Yeah, so when I comb just through, you know, so there, there are a couple prominent theories about what happened to, to Jim. Um, some folks suggest that it was the cops, the cops who had pulled him over and that maybe he had been a little too mouthy when they pulled him over upon his arrival, you know, outside of town. Um, he was a, he was a hippie looking dude also. Uh, you know, you don't get to be an easy writer if you're not, I don't think. Um, so there's a good chance that maybe he rubbed the cops the wrong way. Um, other people say that the Genetis were like connected to the mob or the mafia or something. What? Maybe he stumbled upon something he, yeah. And I mean, like when I started digging See, around, see if you talk about, about this, conspiracy theories. Well, that's right. You know? That's right. I mean, this this entire thing, it's like it's almost like nothing even vaguely weird can happen without it connecting to every other weird thing. Yeah, for sure. And then I think that the idea of aliens, I think that comes um, from certain romantic notions that people have, you know? Uh, you don't write a song like UFO, the song that Jim Sullivan wrote that was included on that first album. You don't write a song like that and then not have people think about extraterrestrials when you straight up and vanish. You know what I mean? Apparently, you know, Al Dobbs, who produced that first record, he was on Coast to Coast AM around the time that Light in the Attic reissued it. And he talked about how Jim and Barbara had like a long history of UFO interests and that they were fascinated in the idea that something might come from another another world and that, that really they all wanted to believe in this idea. So, so I think that in a weird way, faced with um, what I don't want to uh, obscure as clearly a tragedy, you know, because like a, a, a woman and, and her son lost this part of their family, you know, like J Jim was gone. No matter what happened to him, he was definitely gone from their lives, you know. Right. So, well, let, let so me, there is let like, me ask you this, because I, I don't know what the, the personal situ situation was. But you mentioned earlier that they were planning to move to Nashville and join him. Now, she worked in the record industry, is that correct? She did. She, she worked with Capitol Records. So was so, she planning so yeah. to move out and work in Nashville? All, all a little unclear, but, but certainly one could see somebody making their way from the, the music industry in Los Angeles to the music industry in Nashville. You know, it, it would be a... You know, maybe not a completely lateral move, but but you know, doable for sure. So I think his instincts were really were really good to try to head out there, but unfortunately, uh, he he never made it. And I think that that mystery has really um, shaded and colored the way people perceive his work after. You know, I think that the romance of that mystery is at this point as integral to the music as his, you know, his incredible voice or his incredible lyrics.
sun go down every day I got a town cat He sang in C-flat Yeah, we both go out when the sun goes down every day And we both agree that it's the nicest part of the day I bet you want to know what we all do. Yeah, me and my old red town girl, what we wanna say to you? He said, meow wow. He said, meow wow. That means, hey, hey, baby, would you like to play with me? Description than we ever actually came up with when it was <laughs> we happening. Yeah, we didn't really get to sell that, but uh, it's taken a while of trying to explain it to various people over the past several years. I sort of refined the, uh, the description as I went. That's good. You don't have to keep constantly kind of putting putting new new uh, gloss on on the pitch. Right. Well, I got to like hindsight is is everything, obviously, but it was uh, it was a very lofty goal at the time, and we did have quite a bit of fun at the uh, at the outset. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about something that is in vogue, I suppose, a bit, which is autumn. It's, it's, that, it's modern and vogue of the moment. It really is. The, the, the autumn man comes out with his 
coffee and a sweater and women start wearing those high boots again even if it's still 100 degrees so it's a... <laughs> we have to we're actually required by law it's law on instagram it requires us the, the instagram legislation that yes now exactly. controls it, it all, all of our clothing choices so we're in the northern hemisphere obviously if you're listening tonight in uh, new zealand or something you're not having autumn right now but most of our listeners are up here and why is autumn so special and why is it so spooky autumn is an important time in the witchcraft canon obviously so if you look at the wheel of the year um several points at which things transition things change uh we sort of mark the passing of time and you know so we had the equinox obviously um recent holiday and equinox is one of my favorite times actually because it's this one day where there is equal balance between the light and the dark the masculine and the feminine is it's much light as there is darkness but the thing about the equinox which is interesting is that it's kind of like when you're watching a movie and like the villain starts to win because you know like everything is great and fine and very equal but you're also about to tip over into this darkness that is totally out of your control so it's really the time when we like cautiously look back and take stock and appreciate what we have but also sort of start to gird yourself for the incoming darkness and all the things that that means it's basically like the witch's thanksgiving the witch's thanksgiving i like that now there is often when you're talking about autumn holidays autumn occurrences there's talk about a a thinness of the veil between worlds right and what would how 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 do you look at that is that something real is it something that we can feel yeah i mean it's, it's interesting right so essentially when you have this this very liminal state right when the things start to change between the tipping point between light and darkness and you have this basically like this twilight period essentially um so it's really about like the idea of transition is why the veil starts to thin and the concept of the veil is really interesting to me because you know i was reading the this author adrian bott was discussing uh the idea of like this physical veil this like thing that gets thinner and does that come from ancient traditions or does that come from like victorian spiritualism where people needed a more like physical idea to conduct the sort of pageantry that they were doing to do these seances and stuff like that um you know because you had the old concept of what the world was before it was really mapped out and like how big that was like you didn't necessarily need a spiritual like vertical higher realm um you know it was just sort of magic was all over so i i tend to think of the veil as a more conceptual idea where just in any kind of state of transition or liminal space you have more um, ability to connect to something that's like quote-unquote beyond or usually inaccessible so when we talk about these veils, there's often the idea that something can sort of come through and it's easier to do so. And 
for, say, like, old Halloween. It's supposed to be, what, the spirits of the departed? But are there other things besides, say, our old traditional you know, ghosts, uh, old uh, Aunt Sue or whoever coming through to say hello that sort of find it easier to reach humans during this time? Other non-human entities? Perhaps. I think that, you know, it's really a lot of witchcraft today is about the idea of, like, focus and manifestation. And it's really that concept of, like, you end up, you, you end up where you look, right? You follow where you look and the direction that you're going in. And so in these times in which we're giving these ideas more focus and more emphasis, then, of course, you are more likely to be in connection with any kind of thing that you're wanting to conjure. Like, once you're thinking about these spooky things, like, who knows what could come through? That's the excitement. And that's why, you know, the idea of the sort of utility of being scared or confronting those fears and, like, bringing all those things out at once is personally useful at the end of the day hopefully all right well hang keep keep that thought the ravens are telling me i I need to take a brief break and we will be right back on desert oracle radio autumn 2019 We are talking tonight with our guest, Laura Bolt, who is a writer and journalist with a special focus on the occult, on witchcraft, on the subcultures associated with these things, all the interesting stuff. It's pretty good beat. It's a good beat. I agree. Tell me some of the interesting things you've done on this beat. So, when I first moved to L.A. a couple years ago, um, my degree is in comparative religion and mysticism, which is not useful at all until it was. Um, And I, I moved here, I didn't really know anyone, and I ended up at a full moon party at the daughter of a celebrity's house and I was like I guess this is what LA is and you know in like two months or so I was seeing all of these things where you know you weren't going people were going to bars they were going to um stub on sky buying crystals and of course I mean they were doing both but having this sort of subculture around this like healing modalities and witchcraft and new age culture um, just became very obvious that it was a really powerful thing and it's become something that, you know, it was just had a life of its own in a significant way. So uh, I started writing about that. That's why you and I know each other. And since then, it's really just become this, you know, like you look at witchcraft in L.A. like in the 60s and it was really, it was much darker more culty, like more sinister almost thing, you know, more like underground. Um, like great aesthetically, super cool. But you, know, you look today and there's just this aspect of like guru culture and commercialism and it's become a very sort of clean, safe place for people to do really good, important work, but also to sort of sell themselves in a way that they didn't they weren't doing ten years ago. Or at least on the scale. So it's been an interesting scene to watch grow. 
So the, the kind of classic occult revival of the late 60s, 70s, while it certainly had its new age components and its bright spots, there was definitely at least a media focus. I remember that, that Time magazine cover with the Baphomet, Devil Head in Black, you know, the occult nice. revival. And then you had all the, the, the weird people who didn't really seem to be all that much into any of the, the books and the stuff that took re- reading and concentration, but kind of attached like barnacles to some of the ideas and concepts. And it got really kind of a, a, a nasty, almost medieval sort of feel to it, it seems. What's different about now? what it is now and you know one of them really is that aesthetic Instagram culture where the bright and shiny bits go really far and you can take that sort of kernel and you know create a brand with it and it gets really like for some reason the more information that's out there and obviously we're in a time when you essentially have you know a compendium of human knowledge at all times at your fingertips um I don't know if there's a name for it, but for some reason it seems like the more information that you have access to, the least likely, less likely you are to actually investigate those things and to go into it. So you can really take a blurb and make it a lifestyle. Um, and a lot of the stuff is very blurbable, and it's very shareable, and it's very consumable. Um, and, you know, you just have this, uh, this DIY ability, which works for a lot of people in, in times of significant political change and tumultuous uh, social structure. People are really looking for something to grab onto, and a lot of this stuff is very easy to grab onto, and it's very personalized. And, you know, the thing about the company that we worked with was, you know, astrology is the study of you and the science of people themselves and their human interactions so it's very easy to market yeah it's and there's not really uh a filter well can you really say there's not a filter if it's instagram but it's there's not there's not a an an editorial filter i guess to put it in a certain light that might meet the preconceptions of an editor, an assignment editor at the TV news or the newspaper or the cable station, whatever it is. And I mean, I'm sort of interested in the idea that, you know, what you had in the 60s were more group-focused things because the information just wasn't as readily available, so you did have to sort of find a person to follow or you had to fall into a community. Um, and with the internet, with social media, it's very easy to be very isolated in that. So, you know, there are obviously ways to connect, but there's also ways of just sort of doing it in the privacy of your own home that people, I think, gravitate towards. So do you see people making their communities of practice, say, more uh, social media type of things because it's easier to get a to know people who do the things you're interested in. Yeah, I mean it lowers the barrier of entry. Um, 
which is good in a lot of ways and problematic in other ways. So it's a double-edged sword. Um, but it's it's easier to engage in this from behind the screen in some ways um, than to put yourself out there. And, um, you know, there's a, a strength in community and also a vulnerability in finding that community. So, you know, when you find this, like, consumable content that happens to be occult-related or witchcraft-related. Um, and, you know, like people, the design of it is great, and the slogans are strong, and so the branding of the, I've wanted to write something about the branding of it for a while. Um, but yeah, the, uh, the, it's a strong look now, and people are really utilizing it. So it'll be interesting to see where it ends up in the next five years or so. Um, like, does that have legs, or what happens at this point? So the branding that you're talking about is organic. It's not, there's not, uh, that I'm aware of, maybe there is. If there is, I hope they call in a a witchcraft control unit (laughs) that's deciding what things look like. There's not a high council, if that's that's who that would be. Uh, yeah, I think it's more just creative people um, are drawn to this. So you see it from lots of different perspectives. Um, and, you know, there's a, there's a political element. There's a uh, part of it that is very related to modern feminism and forthwith feminism. And, you know, a lot of this is a very good and healthy and natural expression of people being able to take power into their own hands and being able to sort of reclaim a religious structure that felt alien to them or felt oppressive or felt traumatic in a lot of ways um so you you do have a much more widespread way of doing things but you also have a way that feels more personal to a lot of people that you know at the end of the day if, if someone is coming to a system wanting to learn and wanting to grow and be better that's a great thing so when when i was young and i was interested in this stuff opening I went around looking for a book shaking down the libraries going to the you know the weird counterculture shop that sold uh, Wicca books and bongs you know that sort of deal as one does as one does when when one is seeking bumper stickers for a a, a van with shag carpet or anything of, <laughs> of that nature it should really come with a carpet they should just hand out the bumper yeah. stickers they have to go looking for those they're still there And I remember having a sense of, well, this is all kind of about you. You can, I can walk out into the desert or a backyard or an alley or whatever and focus on something and say some sort of words and have some intent for it. And that by the book is legit. But what do you miss if you don't have, like you have... In a, in a church, you know, we were talking about St. Paul earlier tonight, and he was writing these letters, sort of an early social media to all these small groups who were forming these kind of house churches, and they had to lay low because it wasn't, you know, allowed in the society. And so you did end up with sometimes just kind of like lone wolves with letters trying to figure out what what to do and other times you have communities what what do you gain with a a community and how formal or does it need to be formal at all i mean one of the things about mysticism in particular which is why i really like studying it was that it, it was kind of like 
the rebels of religion and the people who were sort of engaging in these things that weren't accessible to other people and they were doing something wrong and untoward and inappropriate and they were just they were getting beyond in a way that wasn't for anyone else so you know the, the lone wolf thing is something that i i've deemed as a, as a tradition for and as a president for in a lot of ways and um you know that sort of communion with the divine and saying that i'm going to breach this barrier by myself because i've earned it because i've wanted it more i tried more um yeah, there's a power in that for sure. Um, I was talking to someone earlier about all this stuff and then the value um, of engaging in these practices. And she was saying that there's, you know, the, the ritual of saying something or saying a phrase that has been said, you know, a trillion times in a church by a trillion other people, like engaging in this body of energy that has been doing these things for so long, like just tap you into the sort of power that feels very transformative. Um, you know, at the same time, like even when you're doing these things in your apartment by yourself, you're doing a Samhain ritual, you're doing an equinox ritual, um, you know, these things, they go back to this mythology that's back from, you know, Persephone going into the underworld, and so you're honoring something that is actually very ancient, that has been playing out in different ways over thousands and thousands of years, so, you know, whether you're doing it in a community or you're doing it by yourself, these archetypes myths are still something that we're paying homage to and connecting with, and, you know, you're doing it with people, you're creating a certain sense of power, you're doing it by yourself, you're also building up that power within you, and like, that feels very witchy at the end of the day. What is it about, and well, it's wilderness and the outdoors in general, I guess, but what is it about the, the desert, especially the desert outside of Los Angeles, that seems to have this very strong pull for people who are interested in practicing these old religions, these old pagan beliefs that are reborn in our modern society? You have a very functional answer, which is access, and, you know, it's three hours from Los Angeles, which is great. Um, and, you know, in another way, you are stripped of these trappings where you could go to parks in L.A., things around here you can get to nature of course but you still have these reminders of where you are so connecting to the past with those things stripped away feels a lot easier when you go out to the desert um and also i don't know if this is true but you can tell me you also have those uh, ley lines out there so you're in this energetic vortex and that's what the integratron is built on supposedly in the giant rock out there and so you have this sort of energetic pull that may be dragging people out there all right, let's 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 talk about this for a minute. Now, there are some people out here who know about the ley lines and the idea of the vortex. In fact, our radio station here sells T-shirts. Are you in the vortex? Are we broadcasting from the vortex? We well, according to the T-shirt, yeah, uh, we're <laughs> right, right right here in uh, downtown Joshua Tree. But tell us what you know about these ley lines in particular and where they run. I mean, my understanding of ley lines has always been it's essentially like an energetic latitude longitude. So you have this. Like, like, say you're looking at Google Maps and you go to the 
the topographical view, right? So you can see how uh, the structures of nature are forming. So this is sort of like a skeleton over that, that is um, energetic connections, um, like a disambiguated map, essentially. And uh, when they inter- when they uh, cross, you have these powerful sort of vortex fields. And uh, apparently outside of, uh, or in Joshua Tree, you're in Landers, I guess, there is one of these vortexes, uh, and they, that's where the Integratron grabs its power from. That's why the well that has the water is supposed to be so good. And it's so, I think Stonehenge is on one as well. Uh-huh. Um, and yeah, it's, it's just these sort of fields of power that, I guess we were talking about the veil earlier, that are these thin areas, areas of significant power, significant um, transformation that things can get back and forth from, and just sort of creates these uh, places, not for me to triangle exactly, but places where uh, weird things can happen and power can be harnessed. So if you're just joining us, we're on the line with Laura Bolt, who is a writer and journalist who specializes in all the stuff we love here at Desert Oracle Radio, the occult, weird California history, witchery, etc. And she just brought up something interesting, which is the Integratron. If you haven't been out here, you got to go see the Integratron. It was built by a former uh, aerospace engineer named George Van Tassel. And according to George, he was instructed by visitors from beyond who told him where to build this thing and how to do it and maybe let him out to Giant Rock, which is a giant rock you can also visit in the first place. And what's especially odd about the idea of these ley lines and energy lines and integratron, you can say, as eh, a bunch of, as a bunch of nonsense. There's no science behind that. Here's something interesting. The Landers quake, which had been the second most devastating quake in terms of its energy in the early 1990s happened on a fault that seismologists had not been previously aware of. The Lander's Fault. Thanks, Laura, for joining us. Something I need to mention is that we are trying to get it together a little bit more at the Desert Oracle Institute because we make the radio shows and the field guides and the various events, but we have not been quite so clever with the income part of the proposition. So now we have a membership drive, a membership drive within the Desert Oracle Institute, if you will, an elite organization kind of people who I don't know the kind of people who might loan their witchcraft books to you so why don't you go to our website desertoracle.com click the become a patron link right up there on the top it's in our twitter bio too can you imagine having to go through life like that talking about the link in your twitter bio 
Well, we don't judge. We don't judge everybody else that much, but we do have to judge ourselves. So if you can contribute a few dollars a month, we'll be able to keep producing these broadcasts and podcasts and live shows. And yes, even the printed field guide, hopefully a little more often. They're trying for one of those genius grants, you know, but we can't figure out how to apply. So in the meantime, we appreciate your support. And you're going to get some interesting stuff for joining us in this weird endeavor. Radio scripts that nobody's ever seen, believe me. Some bonus episodes of stuff people always inexplicably ask me about. Like, why isn't there an hour-long version of whatever conversation with Brendan Mays? That sort of thing. Well, maybe there is. Maybe it's not on the podcast for a reason, you know? But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. A couple of dollars a month, and then it's like you work at Desert Oracle, and you can't leave, and you're out in the desert in this highway cabin, coyotes howling and semi-trucks air-breaking and wild cries from the saloon parking lot, dazzling lights in the sky hovering over the stoplight. So I'll send you some honestly questionable radio scripts secretly every month anything we can do to make a deal is what i'm saying you need me to do your voicemail greeting you got a problem at home somebody or something that needs to be taken care of there's a tear for that tears like in dante like a bosch painting desertoracle.com click on be a patron subscribe to our field guide and join us again Next Friday night, 10 p.m. to 11 p.m. Get the podcast wherever you like to get podcasts. And good night from the Voice of the Desert.